The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. This week, uh, we get uh, Jay Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, speaking on Wednesday and Thursday, testifying, I should say. But that comes after today's speech by President Trump at the Economic Club of New York, which, according to our own Michael McKee, uh, may dictate what Jay Powell will talk about here to join us to give us some insight from the debt market perspective is our own Ira Jersey. He is chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Ira, uh, how do you think Jay Powell could potentially respond to something that President Trump says today? Well, I guess it depends on what he says. I, I suppose if it's talking about trade, um, you know, it won't be much different than what Chair Powell said before, which is, you know, that trade is uh, is something that they look at for what's going to be the direction of the economy and and therefore what they have to do as far as monetary policy goes. Um, if you know, he talks about if if President Trump talks about you know reducing the Fed's independence and yeah, you know, and and basically reiterating some of his his tweets, then you know, I think Chair Powell will wind up reiterating again something that he said at almost every press conference during uh, his tenure, and that's that you know the Fed is, is independent and that the Fed will do what it needs to do, that Congress gave them the uh, the authority to conduct monetary policy as the committee sees fit, and um, and they're not political. Um, you know, obviously, what he hears, I, I think, is going to give him some agita, but he has to say those types of non-political, you know, we're a non-political organization and say things like that. So, Ira, uh, Lisa and I this morning have been talking about that uh, Bank of America a fund manager a survey that came out, and it's uh, you know surprising, I think, to me at least, uh, quite optimistic in terms of the view of uh, the markets and the economy. Do you think the Fed views the world that way, or are they have a, maybe a higher level of caution? Mm -hmm. I, I think that they tend to be a little bit more risk averse. I, I think that's been one of the features of the Federal Reserve since the end of the uh, uh, since the financial crisis. Really, it's that you know let's use caution first because we don't have a lot of ammunition. We're not we don't want to have to do some more extraordinary measures in terms of monetary policy easing. So let's make sure that the economy is on stable footing before. We we, um, before we hike interest rates meaningfully. So, so I think at, at this environment, yeah, I, I agree with that kind of sentiment you just mentioned, Paul, is that I think the Fed is a little bit more skeptical than maybe um, than maybe some market participants are at the moment. And, and I think what, what's going on with a lot of market participants is it's not that things are particularly good, it's that things aren't as bad as they feared. And I think that that's kind of the environment where you can have equities, you know, at or near highs and, and interest rates, you know, creeping a little bit higher. How much is this Europe actually doing a little bit better than it had been? Oh, quite a lot. I think, I think Lisa, that's a very good point because you know Europe, Europe has really kind of been. Um 
uh, been a big big issue, I think, for developed markets in, in, in general. And the fact that, that they're basically exporting a lot of deflation and disinflationary kind of impulses to the rest of the world has been an issue. So the fact that you might have some stabilization in some of their, their survey measures, their manufacturing seems to be lower. You're now getting some fiscal policy out of France, for example, that might actually help their economy a little bit. So when you get this incrementally, you know, kind of good news on the economic front, that's going to lift yields. You know, you know, you know. Look at German ten-year yields; they're still negative, and they're still at uh, you know negative twenty-five basis points, but they're significantly off their lows of negative seventy basis points, right? So that's a, that's a pretty substantial move. I mean, that's a, as big a move in uh, in German yields as you've seen in U.S. yields over the past couple of weeks. Ira, I want to talk about a, a research note you put out this morning. I thought was pretty interesting. It talks about treasury auctions and actually how they occur. My understanding when I was back on the street was the dealers, uh, treasury dealers on the street bought the U.S. bonds and notes when they came out at auction. Has that changed, or how has that changed? Yeah, so so prior to the crisis, you know, dealers bought a, a bulk of uh, of debt and then wound up reselling it to uh, to other investors. So you know, dealers didn't necessarily hold a lot of their debt; they just wind up having to to buy at auction. So since the crisis, that's shifted quite a lot, and actually, investment funds tend to participate in treasury auctions much more than they used to. In fact, you know, if we're just looking at 10-year treasuries, for example, investment funds take between 50 and 60% of most treasure, of most 10-year treasury auctions these days. Dealers take the next most, which is only about 30%, and then um, and and then uh, direct bidders. So these are people who, uh, so foreigners say, uh, um, uh, they only take about 10%. So, so th- there's this idea, I think, in the world that even though... Um, uh, even though foreign holders of treasuries are still very large and about 40% of, of treasury debt right now is held by them, um, really auctions are being driven more by domestic investment funds. So these are you know, pension funds, uh, annuities, uh, mutual funds, and, and the like. So it's really you know, domestic investors really have a lot of um, demand for, uh, for U.S. treasuries. Um, just going back to the Bank of America Merrill Lynch Fund Manager Survey, mm-hmm. another notable uh, sort of shift that we saw was the expectation for yield curve steepening, and right now I'm looking at the gap between 10-year and two-year Treasury yields, uh, reaching the highest since July, nearly uh, toward the highs of the year. Uh, mm-hmm. Just in about 30 seconds here, Ira, do you expect this to continue, or do you think that the consensus has gotten ahead of itself? Well, I think, well, 28 basis points was the high of the year uh, back in June, and I think you break that, and, and we'll keep on steepening a little bit. We're I at think, 27. That's not that far of a call, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but it, if if you break above that, then I do think you, you can reach 35 and kind of new new highs. I think the reason for this is just the idea that um, that the economy is not as bad as it was, and the Federal Reserve is not going to be uh, hiking monetary policy anytime soon. So you're able to see uh, the yield curve steepen just a, a little bit more from here. Ira Jersey, thank you so much. Ira is the chief U.S. interest rate strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone.
In a little bit more than an hour, President Trump taking the podium at the Economic Club of New York, expected to talk about the U.S. economy and how well it's doing. He'll also uh, potentially answer questions about uh, China trade. Then tomorrow, Jay Powell testifying. We'll be taking that live. You can listen to it. But all of this uh, coming at a tenuous time, a lot of uncertainty about whether the economy is about to take off or whether Perhaps people are a little over their skis. Joining us now, Kevin Cummings. He, he is economist at NatWest Markets Securities. So Kevin Cummings, I'd love to get your perspective on this sentiment shift that we've seen, which is somewhat dramatic. Now people being much more bullish rather than bearish. What data have we gotten to actually uh, edify that view? Yeah, well, there's certainly uh, good morning, first off, but there's certainly optimism growing over uh, a reduction in uncertainty should the U.S. and China sign some sort of phase one trade agreement. Um, in our own view here at NWS Markets, we're a little bit reluctant to kind of uh, think that everything's going to turn out all that positive in 2020 if there is some sort of agreement reached. Um, which seems that it's things seem to be moving in that direction, and and perhaps you know the market could potentially be, um, if if Trump this afternoon uh, does talk a, a little bit more uh, uh, hawkish on, on the outlook there, then uh, markets potentially could disappoint here. But um, you know, as far as um, the overall economy, I think you know the the data themselves that have been better. Obviously, was the uh, employment report at the start of the month. Um, you know, the 128,000 jobs that were announced were, is nothing to necessarily write home about, but there were some positive signs of the trend is is uh, rising at a. Uh, better pace than what was initially anticipated because there was a big upward revision to the prior months. And some of the other data within the report were fairly positive. So, Kevin, are you of the opinion that um, it's really really just talking about the consumer here in this economy? We know the consumer is 70% of the economy, but it seems like the other 30% is, is pretty weak, maybe even a manufacturing recession. Is the consumer strong enough to keep this economy growing? Yeah, I mean, consumer spending certainly has been driving the growth in the economy lately. Um, and as you mentioned, manufacturing, which is pretty much at the epicenter of the uh, the trade war, obviously we've seen business investment and exports slow down as well. So it's not only confined to the manufacturing sector, but you know, the the consumer, as you mentioned correctly, uh, is definitely leading the charge with growth. But I think it's pretty obvious that the economy is in a, a slowing phase. And you know, at the start of the year, we're up at three percent. The last couple of quarters. We've been around 2%, um, which seems like a reasonable estimate for the fourth quarter as well. We don't have too much data that go directly into adding up uh, GDP just yet. But later this week, we will get retail sales, which um, you know allow us to get uh, some sense of at least uh, spending heading into the all-important holiday shopping season. A lot of people, including President Trump, uh, seem to be increasingly conflating the performance of equity markets with the U.S. economy. Uh, and, and I guess, you know, even if we do have a slowing U.S. economy, can that support new record highs on the S&P? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a little bit out of my purview. I'm, I'm not a necessarily an equity strategist. No, but, it, but it, um, I do think that the equity market is a good... Um, at least um, indicator of how things are currently. 
Um, so it's more of a coincident indicator. There's very little uh, economic data that actually do that good of a forward-looking gauge about growth. But I, I do think the equity market obviously is a very important one. So I, I definitely don't want to dismiss the um, the positive uh, tone in the equity market uh, with regard to you know the future growth in the U.S. economy. Um, but I do think that some of the earlier strength we've seen in the consumer is probably exaggerated. And, and uh, you know, even just last week, the your guys measure the Bloomberg Consumer Comfort Index fell to a seven-month low. So, you know, it is only one week's worth of data. But I do think we're at, a, um, you know, we are starting to see a downshift in, in consumer spending, uh, which kind of is aligns with the slowdown that we've seen in uh, payroll growth. Now, at the top, we did mention that the employment report was very strong um, and all the upward revisions to earlier months were positive. But I do think we're starting to see some cracks in the consumer, um, not only consumer comfort index with the Bloomberg number coming down, but auto sales for October fell over 3.5% or just about 3.5%, um, which is likely to hold back overall retail sales on Friday. Um, you know, th these data are, clearly aren't weak enough for the Fed to reconsider any recent signal on rates, but in our view, the data don't necessarily support the high degree of confidence that the Fed um, and what Powell is likely to emphasize tomorrow um, with regard to the consumer and the outlook. Kevin, how, what's your view of the European economy? Some people are suggesting that perhaps it's kind of bottoming out. Do you share that view? Um, well, the data there with regard to like the purchasing manager surveys have been um, definitely less weak than they were. I mean, they were collapsing for a while, and they at least showed signs of stability there. Um, and obviously, economies like Germany is is really getting bearing a, a lot of the brunt from the China trade war. So you know they are much more open and exposed to global situations than the U.S. Uh, is directly. So you know I, I focus more on the U.S., but um, we've we've seen less weakness. I, I think there relative to the earlier really significant downward momentum that we saw earlier. Kevin Cummins, thank you so much for being with us. Kevin Cummins, uh, economist with NatWest Markets Securities. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.
today's a big day for the Walt Disney Company. They launched Disney Plus, their streaming service that is slated to go head-to-head with Netflix. The stock is up 1.5% today. Uh, to walk us through kind of what it means for the company, we welcome Geetha Ranganathan. She is Senior Media Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence joining us on the phone. So, Geetha, this is a big day for Disney. Tell us kind of what their strategy is here with Disney Plus. Yeah, so uh, absolutely, Paul. So there's been a lot of excitement and anticipation building up for this service, which will really be the core of Disney's uh, direct-to-consumer strategy. Um, so they've been really b- building for this service for many, many years now, uh, acquiring the technology and then really making that transformative acquisition with Fox uh, just to get that extensive catalog of content. But really, this is uh, you know this is going to be the core of the company, I think, for for, for the foreseeable future. Uh, management has staked, uh, especially Bob Iger, has kind of staked his legacy on this on, on the success of this product. So it is a make or break attempt by Disney to reposition the company for growth. I love how it's uh, being assessed right now, the rollout. Yes, there were technical glitches and crashes for some users, but social media, people seem to like it. Uh, you know, how do we decide whether this was successful or not? So I think first day launch issues are typical uh, in streaming. I mean, they did expect this. They had a test pilot, which uh, they carried out in the Netherlands a few weeks ago. Um, Disney management said last week at the earnings call that 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 pilot actually was pretty successful. The glitches are scattered. Uh, I think it resolves itself in in the course of the next few hours or by the end of the day. they did actually put a tweet out just a few minutes ago saying that consumer demand has exceeded expectations. Uh, and so that point, <laughs> yeah, absolutely positive. And, um, you I know, mean, what, some- but Geetha, come on, do we expect anything other than that? This is from Disney, right? <laughs> I mean, are they going to put a tweet up being like, guys, guys, where are you? <laughs> I don't know why you're not signing up faster. I mean, there were some um, so there were some reports yesterday, which just just to kind of give you a sense of of the, the the demand out there. So there were some reports suggesting that there were almost more than two million pre-orders. But really, I mean, I think Disney's secret weapon here will be its its marketing advantage, right? They have millions and millions of touch points across the company, spanning their channels, their parks, their cruises, their their hotels, retail stores. So that that's an area that they're really going to have a significant advantage. So, Geetha, talk to us about the financials here, the economics of this business. It's not a cheap business. We see, the, you know, Netflix spending a gajillion dollars every year on programming. What's how's Disney going to do it? Yeah, it's it's really the same story for Disney as well. Um, the only, uh, the, I guess, the main difference there is they own a lot of their library content. So at launch, they have 500 films, 7,500 uh, episodes, TV episodes. They own all of that. Uh, of course, it's still going to cost them because they are putting originals on their service as well. So they at launch, they have 10 originals. Uh, by the fifth year, they're going to have almost 60 of those originals. And just with uh, the cost of the originals, uh, as well as the lost licensing revenue, they're going to lose probably anywhere from about two to two and a half billion uh, over the next few years, in each of the next few years. So the service is not going to be profitable till at least 2024. Keitha, do you have cable? (laughs) I do. Yeah. What, What would it take for you to cut the cord? So, so I think the thing that's really keeping me glued to to, to cable right now, uh, like everybody else, is sports. Um, you know, ES- who's your team? <laughs> Um, well, I have lots of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, but, but you know, just, just sports in, in general. And, and I think that's what's keeping people really glued to, 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 to their bundle right now. So, Geetha, for this, this Disney Plus thing, one could argue that 
maybe Disney and all these other folks are, are late to the game. Um, I mean, there's a lot of competition in the streaming business. Talk to us about the competitive landscape. Yeah, I think that, you know, most people are really kind of expecting more of this two-horse race between Netflix and Disney. Um, we do have some of the other services as well. Uh, you know, CBS, for instance, has the all-access and the Showtime service. But I think a lot of those are, are going to really see tremendous competitive pressure. I think when all is said and done over the next three to four years, we're really going to see Netflix uh, kind of consolidate its position and Disney with its three services, so Disney Plus, Hulu, and um, and ESPN Plus have at least uh, over well over 100 million subscribers in the United States. Geetha Ranganathan, thank you so much. Well, the first major cold snap for the Northeast is coming this week. That usually gets the attention of energy traders to get a sense of what's going on in the global energy markets. We welcome our good friend, Stephen Shork, uh, Shork Group President. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. So give us a sense of just kind of what we're seeing in the natural gas and maybe even other energy spaces as we get this cold blast of air coming across the U.S. Well, absolutely. In the natural gas market, which we are we are and continue to be in a structural long-term bear market. We've had a significant rally over the last two weeks. This was uh, created by an oversold condition. That is to say, speculators on Wall Street had greatly oversold this market when we uh, judged their risk ratio relative to the CFTC data. So you juxtapose that oversold condition with the first major blast of cold air, and that was quickly priced into the futures market. So we've had a significant rally in the gas market leading up into the close of last week. Uh, we just got the new CFTC data out on this past Friday. Uh, the bears have been squeezed out of the market. The risk ratio is lower. So this, the, the bullish short squeeze in the market is now over. So you take that short squeeze out of the market. And yes, we're getting hit with the cold right now. But keep in mind, these are futures markets. So we're looking at, okay, what is the next shoe to drop? And although we're seeing very cold or about to see very cold uh, temps in some key gas fuel market areas uh, over the next week, the forecast beyond one week out is much more moderate. So we had a significant sell-off or a correction, that is to say, in the oil markets to start off this week. Got it. And so in other words, it sounds like unless there's another cold spat, uh, you think that probably things are going to go down or flat from here for NatGas? Uh, absolutely, Lisa. I think uh, we're, we're setting up to the same scenario we saw last winter. Last winter, when you, you got some cold in, in the forecast, you got some cold winter, we saw a 20, 30 cent rally in the market. You take that cold out of the market, then we saw a 20, 30 cent correction. And we yo-yoed uh, all of last winter. And it wasn't until we got into the spring of la last, uh, uh, last year when the floor from underneath the market fell out and natural gas prices crashed. Yeah. We're now going into the peak demand season. So yes, this is going to be a market that lives and dies with the weather forecast. All right. So that's natural gas. Let's turn to crude. And uh, I've been seeing a number of stories about how shale producers are planning to reduce their spending next year, uh, planning to cut production further. We're hearing some about even the uh, deep water drillers uh, planning to potentially do the same. Do you think that this will change the dynamic uh, with respect to what people had been talking about with the oversupply? Uh, within crude. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, the market is, is far too focused on demand, that is to say, uh, about the ongoing, offgoing talks with China and, and the tariffs. Uh, no one's really, uh, the narrative really hasn't been on to supply. And I think that will change in the new year, Lisa, as we go in and we look at, for instance, uh, rig counts. Rig counts are now at, at two plus year lows. But the problem there is we're much more efficient. We're better at producing with less. So we're still getting oil onto the market. The biggest, biggest concern for this market in 2020 is the hundred and some odd $40 billion of debt that is now coming due in the oil patch. Remember, oil prices crashed at the end of 2014, 2015. Wall Street allowed the shale patch to kick the can down the road five years out with increased in the revolvers and their credit lines. Wall Street is no longer willing to do that. Wall Street wants to see the money. So you've got $140 billion there and about coming due over the next two years, 2020 through 2022. So you're about to see, or we are on the cusp to see a major contraction in the industry. That is to say, you're going to see a lot of small producers with a lot of debt on their books about to be gobbled up. And these are only going to be producers with good acreage are going to be gobbled up with the big guys with clean balance sheets. So we've got a little energy IPO deal coming down the pike, yes. Saudi Aramco. So how does the market, the energy markets, do you think, how do they perceive Saudi Aramco? Uh, you know what? Saudi Aramco is 10 years too late uh, with this IPO. You have every major Western oil company they're not even oil companies. They've rebranded themselves. They're natural gas companies. They're power companies. They're energy companies. They've taken the word oil out because clearly out to the future growth of oil, the demand decay is there. The most optimistic uh, forecast by an, another researcher says demand decay or demand um, will, will, will peak in 2035 and, and then we'll, we'll, we'll begin to be pulled back. I'm not as optimistic. I, I think the genie is out of the bottle. So with regard to that $2 trillion valuation for, for the small piece of that pie, Aramco is willing or the, the Saudis are willing to give up. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not hopeful on that given about the whole structural change in the market away from an oil based uh, economy to at least a natural ga gas based economy and some other alternative fuel if certain presidential candidates have their way uh, 12 months hence. All right, Stephen, uh, just uh, we are looking ahead to 2020 right now looking at crude trading on the NYMEX, $56 and $67, uh, 60, $56.70. Yeah. Uh, I'm just wondering what you think it's going to be next year. What's the peak and the trough? Uh, Right, right now, I think uh, we're in that area where uh, oil peaking in that low 60 to mid $60 range. Uh, once, once we roll into the spring and we get ready for next summer when demand peaks in, uh, we're, we're, we're pretty much, I think, in that range. And this is NYMEX WTI we're talking about. Right now, where oil is $55, $56 a barrel. For the industry to remain healthy, oil cannot go any lower than where we are right now. So in a healthy uh, oil economy, or you market, we're looking at oil in that mid-50 to mid-60 dollar range through 2020. Of course, if we see anything, any pullback below that mid-50 to low-50 dollar range, that is a telltale uh, of severe economic contraction. It's something to keep an eye on, uh, but it, I'm not that concerned with regard to the quote-unquote the R word, the recession 
recession word. I don't think we're headed there. So I think oil in that uh, in the market area, in the area where we are now in the NYMEX, mid to low 50s, uh, but not much higher than, than the uh, high 60s going forward. So a relatively stable market uh, when we look in the aggregate. Stephen Shork of the Shork Group, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.